In nomine Patsy, Filipitus Santi, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Today the Church uh, presents us with the iconic uh, image and story, the parable of the Good Samaritan story of uh, this man who makes this journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And it's uh, filled with many images about, really about what it truly means to live uh, charity and love for one's neighbor to the full. It's an account that uh, the church fathers have over the centuries or had over the centuries reflected on deeply. And it's, it's interesting to note that it all begins with a question about what must I do to inherit internal life. It's a scholar who stood up to test Jesus and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We know that eternal life was a relatively late concept in Judaism. I don't know the exact time that it began to arise. It was probably something that arose bit by bit, but probably around the time of the exile. So it's logical that there was not a very, very uh, clear answer as to what this might might be, what the answer would be. There would have been disputes about it. The Sadducees, well, they were an example of the older Judaism. They didn't even believe in spirits, nor did they believe in, in angels, so they definitely did not believe in eternal life or the, the idea of, of life after death. They were mainly uh, beholden on to the Mosaic Law, the Temple. They took care of everything that had to do with the Temple, whereas the Pharisees, they did believe in eternal life, or what we might call life after death. But there are few signs or evidences of this belief in early Judaism. Ezekiel did did speak about it when he spoke about the resurrection uh, or the the vision of the dry bones, these bones that are in this field or this this desert that suddenly stand up, and that would have been around. 530 or so BC but some of them thought that this was just a a metaphor for national rebirth, uh, for the rebuilding of the temple, like the bones, well that's like the rebuilding of the temple, others did see this as a sign of the resurrection so at that time when our Lord was speaking the question was pretty open that's why the scholar on account of this debate 
asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord points him to an ancient belief that everybody did believe. What is written in the, in the law? How do you read it? And what was that the one text that everybody agreed on? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He answered, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And it's as a result of this, this principle that the Lord recounts the story that we know of the Good Samaritan. And of course, the scholar did not test Jesus about secondary details, but really about the essentials, really about the core of the law. And the core of God's will, the core of God's law, is, is a core that is there for us too. And, and the Lord said, do this and you will live. For us to really be alive, we have to live the core. And, and that is articulated in the story of the Good Samaritan. So let us picture him now in our prayer on his road to, from Jerusalem to, Jer to Jericho. It's about an eight-hour walk, maybe cover something like 24 kilometers or so. It's a dry and dusty road, and it is literally like a walk down. So it's not, it's because Jericho is like one of the lowest spots on the earth. It's it's really close to the to the Dead Sea, so it's very low, and that in itself, the church fathers understood that Jerusalem was like the celestial city, the heavenly city, whereas Jericho was like basically hell. Right? It was you're going down to hell. But at the level of the story, this man was going along these dusty roads, these jagged cliffs on either side. Probably there were vultures flying around, predators along the way. And of course, it was a very inhospitable area. And, well, there were a lot of thieves on the way. Robbers who took advantage of vulnerable people. They would rob them and, and make off with their belongings. And so that's the sort of uh, context and then this man, this unnamed man, walks along and he succumbs to these thieves. And we are told he ends up lying there on the side of the road, half dead. So that image of this man, half dead, he's not dead, he's not dead. But he is, he's been stripped naked, he's lying there without anything. They took his, they took, they didn't just take his money, they took his robe or, you know, his clothing, because even clothing could be useful to them. So there he's, he's lying without anything, which is, of course, a very, very humiliating situation where you're out in the public lying like that. It's, he was very humiliated, but he wasn't dead. He was half dead, which is also an image of our state after the fall, man after the fall. We are wounded, but we are not totally corrupt. We are not dead as later Calvinists would have suggested that man is so totally corrupt that he can never do anything, anything good at all. And uh, that was based on the Lutheran concept of total, absolute depravity, probably a reflection of 
Luther's own struggle with sin. He could never seem to overcome it, so he thought, well, we're all completely, totally, absolutely depraved. And uh, again, a very discouraging and a very dark vision for man. But he says, okay, he was hit badly by these robbers, quite humiliated, but he was not dead, not totally corrupt. He was just half dead, which is bad enough, but it's not totally dead. It's the wounded nature of the human person. And so he could be the generic man. He could be the symbol of Adam who falls to sin, and he needs to be picked up in his corruption. He could be us, and you and I, who need to be picked up along the road of life, who need confession, who need to be forgiven, and who can indeed be picked up. Now, Augustine, St. Augustine, he has quite an elaborate allegorical interpretation of the, of the parable. He says that the Samaritan is Christ. The animal of the Samaritan, the donkey, is the flesh of Christ. The man coming down from Jericho is Adam. The robbers, those are Satan and his minions. The inn that he brings him to is the church. And the innkeeper is, uh, is the apostle. The apostle who, who takes care of the fallen man in the church, in the inn. And, okay, that's a pretty, uh, you know, well-developed allegorical imagery. And, it, of course, it has, uh, you know, some standing in the church. But if we, if we go back to the, to the actual story, we can imagine that the man along the road must have, like at a, at a human level, he must have put up a good fight. But in the end, these robbers, these minions of the devil, so to speak, uh, overpowered him and he ended up lying there naked, bleeding, in agony probably in and out of consciousness and the vultures were now circling to get their food because they were expecting him to die but he did not die indeed when we think of this man image of the fallen man image of fallen Adam really ultimately image of you and me we feel an empathy for him as we picture him now in our mind we want to be able to do something for him and there well there comes somebody who could do something and it's a priest and a bit later comes a Levite both of them would have known well the law they had studied it they had memorized it the verses they also adhere very strictly to Israel's purity laws, which, well, forbade them from touching a dead corpse of anyone. The only people they were allowed to touch that were dead were family members, but not anybody, because that would lead you to be impure, and um, they probably knew this passage by heart. I don't know if they habitually came across dead people, but definitely it said in Leviticus 21 that you cannot touch dead people. So, upon seeing him, they both had a moment to think about it, maybe even to check if he was dead, but they clearly didn't check very well. I can imagine the priest saying something like, in his head, saying, well, poor guy, I, he looks like he's in pretty bad shape. Well, he looks pretty, he looks pretty dead to me, I think. 
but we can't test, you know, check the pulse because who knows, he might be dead, so then I'd be impure. The law forbids this. Otherwise, I would help. But if I touch him, then I'll be impure, which means I can't uh, come in contact with anybody else, which means I can't go to the parochial party in the afternoon, which means uh, uh, it's not good, it's not good. I better not do this, you know, I mean, uh, you know. And plus, I'm not too much of an expert. He looks pretty, yeah, he's dead, yeah, whatever, he's dead. What, what's, what am I going to help him if he's dead already, right? Look at the color of this guy, <laughs> forget it. He's, and plus, the vultures, they know, so. Oh, well, I best be on my way. The most important thing is to be, you know, pure, to preserve my purity, my purity in front of the law. And then he went off, dum da dum da dum, you know. And uh, it's, it doesn't even sound that hard-hearted. I mean, it doesn't sound, it just sounds just like rather superficial and flighty. You know? Especially the fact that he didn't really make sure that he was dead, he didn't take the risk in one homily, Pope Francis said that this guy, this guy, uh, you know, he looked good, both the men, the, the priest and the Levite, but their actions both show that they were ultimately really fleeing from their responsibilities, from their duty of charity, even though they rationalized themselves out of this. They had a duty of compassion, we have a duty of compassion. We have to care deeply for those around us. This has to be deeply embedded in us. We have to care for others. And uh, these guys didn't do this. this. This has to affect us in some way. We say, no, I, I want to help, Lord. Well, then along comes this Samaritan. We don't know this Samaritan's name. The Jews and the Samaritans had been long hostile to each other. And why? Because the Samaritans, well, they, they had picked up on some of the elements of the Mosaic Law, so they believed in, in, the, in the Torah, but they rejected the prophets. They intermarried with pagans. They even adopted certain pagan customs. And since there were these sort of difficulties and tensions with the Jews. The Jews didn't let them into the precincts of the temple because they didn't believe in the prophets. And anyway, so, so, the, yeah, so the Samaritans said, well, too bad, we're just going to build our own temple, and they built it on Mount Gerasim. And it was kind of like a truncated version of Judaism. And uh, you'll remember that time when James and John were walking by a, a Samaritan village tiny little village with just a corner store and just a few people and and they said to the Lord look Samaritan let's just call down fire and destroy these guys you know, I mean that shows the really the the anger and the hatred that they had for Samaritans and the Lord said yeah don't destroy them I don't think that's a good idea relax guys you know, relax but it does show there was hostility but when this Samaritan comes, he is deeply moved. He, this compassion wells up. His heart seems to be wrenched open. He's like struck by a flash of lightning. The lightning of mercy hits him. And suddenly he becomes a neighbor. He's heedless of any dangers. He certainly doesn't think about legal impurity. 
He comes to the man, sees he's alive, gives him a bit of water. He's wounded, so he pours pours oil on his wounds that somehow, you know, somehow helps him. And uh, I would imagine that the the wounded man is too wounded to speak. He's just groggy, and he just lets himself be helped. And uh, the Samaritan thinks it through and decides to mount him on his donkey. And there's still some way to go before he arrives at Jericho. The vultures are circling. So he realizes this is pretty urgent. This guy could die on his way. So he walks while the, the man just is lying there on his donkey. And he brings him to this inn. We sometimes forget about the innkeeper. We're told that the innkeeper is asked to take care of him. He's even paid to take care of him while the Samaritan goes off on his business, but that he will come back. And we forget about the innkeeper because it's quite uh, impressive. He really does his job quite well. He cares for the stranger that he's entrusted with. And not much is said about him except that he does his job very well. And he, I would suspect that he senses that this is the most important thing that he will do today. Take care of this man. He finds, he finds clothing for him. He finds uh, food. He examines his wounds. Maybe he got uh, a friend who is more expert in these things. Maybe his children came and helped out, even though they're usually not too helpful, but uh, at least uh, they were, yeah, they were affectionate with the man. St. Irenaeus, one of the fathers of the church, said that the Holy Spirit is the innkeeper to whom the Good Samaritan, Christ, entrusts wounded humanity, asking the Spirit to take care of it. Just as the, the Holy Spirit is the great unknown, we don't see him always act uh, directly, but he acts into our soul, he cleanses us, the Holy Spirit is the one who forgives us. If, like, when we are forgiven by, by Christ, but it is the Holy Spirit who who remits our sins. So He's the one who heals our soul. And uh, it's a, it's a beautiful account because because precisely because he's kind of he kind of disappears. We don't hear much about the innkeeper, but it's thanks to the innkeeper that this poor guy survives. And so, really. This account of the Good Samaritan is a beautiful and palpable illustration of how faith in God must be congruent, must be active, and how, of course, it leads the Lord to say, you go and do the same. Do the same. Live that same mercy. Live that same charity. You know, perk people up. What did our father say about this? Our father commented about this in Friends of God. He said, after describing the scene and and going over it, as we just have, he said, when our own life or in that of others, we notice something that isn't going well, something that requires the spiritual and human help, which as children of God, we can and ought to provide, then a clear sign of prudence is to apply the appropriate remedy, 
by going to the root of the trouble resolutely, lovingly, and sincerely. There's no room here for inhibitions, for it is a great mistake to think that problems can be, can be solved by omissions or procrastinations. Our Father speaks about omissions in our life, omissions of charity, omissions of fraternity, or just procrastination, procrastination of a fraternal correction, procrastination in helping somebody in need. I'll do this later. Right now I have to do this thing that I prefer. And he wants, he wants us to forego those omissions, forego those procrastinations. He says later, Prudence demands that the right medicine be used whenever the situation calls for it. Once the wound has been laid bare, the cure should be applied in full and without palliatives. When you see the slightest symptom that something is wrong, be straightforward and truthful about it. Irrespective of whether it involves helping someone else or whether it is your own problem. When such help is needed, we must allow the person who, in the name of God, has the qualifications to carry out the cure, to press in on the affected wound, first from a distance, then closer and closer until the pus is squeezed out and the infection is eradicated at its source. We must apply these procedures first to ourselves, then to those whom, for reasons of justice or charity, we are obliged to help. So it's a, it's a relatively complex image that our Father here uh, elucidates to help us see our responsibility in helping others in spiritual direction, helping others in fraternal correction, but also really seeing within ourselves our defects, being ready to root out the deepest defects and not allow uh, some, some defect to, to uh, anchor itself in us, some attachment to anchor itself too deeply within us. We have to, it's like a wound that we have to eradicate at its source, our father would say, eradicate it. It's, uh, it, it takes uh, courage and it's this really desire right, to, to live out the, the virtue of prudence and to arrive at this greater sanctity that the Lord calls us to. And we know that he who takes care of those in need is implicitly making an act of faith in God. God's loving face shines in a special way among those who are in need. We may not find a, you know, a man wounded on the side of the road every day, but in a certain way we find them in our daily life among those we live with. The image of a, a wounded person is a, is a powerful image, but there are wounds of different kinds that we see. Lord, we ask you now in our prayer, you have expanded the notion of neighbor. You have expanded the notion of the person lying on the side of the road. The, the road is our, our life. The, the road is our family life. The road is, is just our work, where we are every day. You know, a neighbor is not just a fellow 
member of one's own people as the Jews thought just the people that were strictly there that were believed the same things in fact many of the Jews believed that Samaritans were not neighbors because they had defiled the temple precincts that they didn't believe in the correct things but the Samaritan doesn't think like that everybody in some way is his neighbor he's open to him here Pope Benedict in his book uh, Jesus of Nazareth also has a comment on that right he says that we give too little when we just give uh, material things and aren't we surrounded by people who have been robbed and battered he says, the victims of drugs and human trafficking, sex tourism, inwardly devastated people who sit empty in the midst of abundant, material abundance. All this is of concern to us. It calls us to have the eye and the heart of a neighbor and to have the courage to love our neighbor too. For as we have said, the priest and the Levite may have passed by more out of fear than out of indifference well it reminds us along this road there are people we have to waste time with and it's not just people necessarily who have uh, material have materially been robbed in some ways it's what we do when we give uh, formation to others when we guide them and that indeed uh, Pope Francis when he commented, commented on this a number of years ago in his uh, sermons there in Santa Marta he said that uh, the very Samaritan himself was not really accustomed to religious life even to the moral life and indeed theologically he was in error he was like a heretic but something woke up within him and he did not flee from this duty and he spent all afternoon with this this man. While the priest, he says, he arrived on time to Holy Mass. And the faithful were very happy with him. And the Levite had a tranquil day that went on exactly as uh, expected. Well, we have to think, you know, do I hear the voice of God? Do I let the other people complicate my life? Am I ready to allow them to complicate my life? And, or is, there, is it possible that in any way I have a closed heart to those on the pathway of my life? That I have a closed heart and I'm not always ready to, to not so much to help out, but to, to make my life a little bit more complicated. To hear the voice of God. Ultimately, it means we have to let the Lord live and write our own biography. Sometimes we may just want to write it within the bounds of respectability. We want our biography to be written by ourselves. But the people that come along our way, the young people, the people that come here, our sisters in the work, sometimes just even the events of life have to be part of our biography. And so we ask now our Blessed Mother really to help us live charity in its fullness and see how we can live it specifically by the different forms of woundedness that we see along our way. And we can be like that Good Samaritan and, and live that generosity, waste time with others. As our Lord says, go and, and live this yourself. <laughs>
I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me.